I'm Kiefer. On this episode of Deconstructing Health, I'm going to dissect the ketogenic diet. We'll explore the good, the bad, and the ugly of the latest ketogenic trend and dismantle some of the myths. Starting off, I want to make clear that I'm an unenthusiastic supporter of the ketogenic lifestyle because it does have its uses, but I also don't recommend a ketogenic diet because it doesn't decrease the disease state. It's also not very good for fat loss, which we'll get to later. Before we get too deep into how a ketogenic diet works, we need to understand exactly what a ketogenic diet is. I'm very careful when I talk about my own work, carb night and carb backloading, to never use the word ketogenic. There's no ketogenic phase of the diet. The diet is not cyclic ketogenic, which, to be honest, is a nonsensical term the way it's used today. Now, for those of you who've read Carb Night, you know that I dedicated an entire section of the book to the ketogenic diet and also the, all the reasons it fails. That's why I created Carb Night in the first place, to fix the many problems with a ketogenic diet while keeping the benefits. That was 12 years ago. Nothing has changed. The only difference is that the science has given us more information about the shortcomings of the ketogenic diet. Carb night and carb backloading alternate between periods of ultra-low carb and high carb. Most of the time on either diet, it's probably unlikely that your ketone levels will ever be much over one millimole per liter, which is low, and most of the time they'll be less than one. This is because I designed these two diets to enhance fat loss while maintaining or increasing lean body tissue. To do this, a person will need to ingest protein to fat ratios that don't necessarily allow high levels of ketone production. The goal I always have in mind is to optimize health first. This makes rapid fat loss or increased performance simple. So that begs the question, what is the goal of a ketogenic diet? Well, it's pretty much in the name. The goal is to elevate ketone levels to a certain threshold on a consistent or even continuous basis. Since ketones are the goal, this dictates the allowed macro ratios. Now, this may not be the goal that people use to advertise the diet, but this is in fact the primary goal and application of the ketogenic diet. I'll get back to this myopic and misplaced emphasis on ketones in a moment when I talk about the ugly aspect of the ketogenic diet. But right now, we need to ask another more important question. Is optimizing for ketone production compatible with other goals, such as increasing health, losing body fat, and preserving or increasing lean tissue? I've never seen anyone address this question, which means that we definitely should. As you might guess from my reluctance to ever recommend a pure ketogenic diet, the answer is no. That's not to say that ketogenic diets don't have their uses. Ketogenic diets can manage intractable childhood epilepsy, type 1 diabetes, and glycogen storage disease. And ketogenic diets offer powerful treatment options, if not cures, for certain types of cancer, like liver, pancreatic, or brain. And it can even treat Alzheimer's disease. And a ketogenic diet can prevent the de development of pretty much all modern metabolic diseases if used for one's entire life. In other words, from childhood onward. Think pre-modernized Inuits. But most people who try the ketogenic diet today don't fit into these classifications. The vast majority of people who try any diet do so to lose weight. 
The same is true of ketogenic diets, and it's just not suited to the task. As I said on the last episode, to be healthy means we need to avoid being anywhere in the disease state. And I'll talk about the disease state a little bit more later. But to become healthier, therefore, we need a diet that can repair whatever state of disease we're currently in. This is an important distinction. That's why probably on every episode, I'm going to remind you of a key fact about the body and dieting. If you're healthy, you'll be lean. This also means that as you become healthier, you will become leaner. The opposite is definitely not true. Forcing the body to become leaner does not increase health. As a matter of fact, nearly all popular diets actually worsen the disease state. Without going on into all the details right now, we can just consult epidemiological data and maybe your own experience to make this painfully clear. All the data that, expl- that examines weight loss and the follow-up weight maintenance show that people have an incredibly difficult time maintaining their weight loss and often end up gaining more body fat than they started with. It's not because they're weak-willed. The diet either did nothing to repair the disease state, which is the reason they have excess body fat in the first place, or as it happens in most cases, the diet helped them lose weight but made their body more sick in the process. Since they're more sick, they gain back a larger amount of body fat. This brings us to the good part of the ketogenic diet. It can lead to fat loss without increasing the disease state, meaning that when or if you ever stop the diet, you'll only gain back as much fat as you lost in the first place. And this has been demonstrated. So for weight loss diets, I would say this is the greatest single benefit of the ketogenic diet. Although it doesn't repair the disease state, it does, in a sense, freeze it. So how is this beneficial? Well, if you're not increasing the disease state, you'll feel immensely better. The poison that exacerbates disease is being removed from the system. Without the poison, which is usable carbohydrates, your system begins to operate at its current peak. This isn't the best you can do, but it feels a whole hell of a lot better than spending each day making yourself more and more sick. So remove the poison and you feel better. Nothing too crazy or exceptional here. I want to be clear. Carbohydrates are the poison, not insulin. I'll tear down the insulin hypothesis another time. But for now, it's sufficient to acknowledge that all day, everyday consumption of carbohydrates not just sugar, but any usable carbohydrates, and yes, that includes oatmeal, that creates a toxic and destructive environment for the body. As far as popular diets go, that's essentially the only good and unique aspect of a ketogenic diet. Since we've removed the toxins, pretty much all blood markers used to assess health, as defined by your doctor, although these markers don't actually correlate with health at all. They correlate with your trajectory of disease. The blood work in this case doesn't say you're healthy, nor does it say you're getting healthier. It simply says you're no longer getting more sick. You've essentially stopped traveling down the disease cascade, which is by all accounts good, but it's not great. As I said, ketogenic diets can aid in fat loss, but it's a tricky proposition 
as many people have discovered. Some fanatic ketogenic adherents, one in particular with a pop- popular ketogenic podcast, even suffers this truth in a public setting, gaining back a significant amount of body fat, becoming almost unrecognizable while still adhering to a ketogenic diet. To understand how optimizing ketone production and optimizing fat loss can be contradictory goals, we need to swirl off on a tangent for a moment and talk about calories in, calories out. Now, somewhere in the back of your mind, you might be thinking, here we go again. That's probably a fair thought. I've spent multiple hours of podcast time on this subject, not to mention pages and pages of digital ink. It's such a fundamentally misunderstood concept. What feels like too much explanation never seems to be enough. So take something as simple as protein requirements. When you ingest protein, the body needs to expend about 30% of the amount of calories of that protein to break down that that protein. This has led some people to suggest that you need to eat even more protein to make up for the energy loss, assuming that 30% of the protein is wasted for energy production. But the energy required to break down the protein doesn't come from the protein. The body just has to expend extra energy during processing, and that energy will come from the metabolization of carbs or fat. If you don't think at least one level past the simple calories in, calories out, or all calories are equal, it's easy to get confused and to make erroneous suggestions. I'm not going to attack the notion that calories matter because, let me be clear, calories do matter but not in the way you might imagine. I do think it's safe, at least for me, to assume that everyone agrees that the body expends a certain number of calories per day, and those calories need to come from somewhere. If you don't agree, then, well, you probably need to purchase a book on thermodynamics for dummies. Or, better yet, maybe you can find the elusive, even simpler text, thermodynamics for chimps. That might help you out. So I brought up the example of how we might misinterpret the energy loss from eating protein to illustrate something important. We need to understand where the calories come from for different goals. The protein we ingest is normally not used for energy. It's used as building material for muscle, cells, hormones, connective tissue, and other important stuff. If you choose to provide that extra 30% of calories for more protein, that will have metabolic consequences. Plus, you'll need to provide an extra 30% of that 30% for the lost energy, then 30% of that 30%, and so on. But don't worry, the mathematical series converges to a finite number, which in this case is three halves. So if your body needs 100 grams of protein, you'll need to eat 150 grams to account for all the energy loss. But if you choose to provide that extra 30% of calories with carbs, that will have very different metabolic consequences from the protein. And if you choose to use fat, the metabolic consequences will be different still. So when we talk about dieting or weight loss, we are trying to extract the majority of our energy needs from our body fat. It's the only way to mobilize our fat, it's the only way to metabolize our fat and eventually exhale the byproduct, which is carbon dioxide and water. We diet to lose fat. This is how fat gets lost. We literally breathe it out. The problem is this. 
The fat cells of the body can only release so much fat per day for energy needs because of enzymatic and energetic limitations. So first, we need to determine how much energy our body can provide from the amount of fat we store. It turns out, if you're extremely overweight, you can mobilize about two-thirds of a percent, that's around 0.67% per day of your total amount of body fat. Now, determining this factor becomes more complex as you lose fat, but we can use this as an idealized example because it gives a good enough estimate. Now, you might be asking yourself at this point, what does this have to do with ketogenic diets? Or maybe you forgot I was even talking about ketogenic diets. But either way, this is a key point as to the failure, and some might say stupidity, of recommending a ketogenic diet for fat loss. Keep in mind, to get your body into a ketogenic state, at the very least, you're going to need about one gram of fat for every two grams of protein. Most people actually need even less protein per gram of fat maybe down to less than one gram of protein for every gram of fat, if we're focused on ketosis. So let's start with a 250-pound male. That's 30% body fat, so he's obese. His body fat reserves can provide over 2,000 calories for the day. If he wants to help preserve muscle tissue or all lean tissue, he'll have to eat a minimum of 50 grams of protein. So in this case, for maximum fat loss, his diet will not be ketogenic. When you eat protein without accompanying macros, the gut will convert enough of the protein into glucose through gluconeogenesis to knock the body out of ketosis. It's just unavoidable, and also why high-protein meals are so satiating. If we consider leaner people and you work out the numbers, you'll find that if your goal is maximum fat loss, you have no chance of being ketogenic until you're under about 8% of body fat. And this is a good thing. Being in ketogenesis actually suppresses leptin, one of the key regulatory hormones for fat mobilization. Being ketogenic literally slows down fat loss. The flip side of this is that you have no chance of achieving maximum fat loss while preserving lean tissue if your goal is to be in ketosis. I will never be able to state this enough times. Maximum health, longevity, and disease resistance and cancer survival is directly correlated to the total amount of lean tissue you have. You absolutely don't want to lose it. All of this presents a strange and actually ubiquitous paradox about dieting. And like most paradoxes, it only seems as such because it's counterintuitive. As you lose body fat, that is if you want to maintain maximum fat loss while keeping the maximum amount of lean tissue, you have to increase your dietary calories as you lose weight. This is true for all weight loss diets. And in the case of an ultra low carb diet, that means adding a lot of fat back into the diet the leaner you get. Hence, you might eventually end up on a ketogenic diet if you get lean enough. And my figure, fitness, bikini, and bodybuilder clients always seemed confused by this. I had them eating more food the closer they got to the contest time, or I cut their exercise regimen. That's why my clients never experience the metabolic derangement that inflicts the vast majority of all competitors, especially women. Again, 
Increasing calories as you lose weight seems counterintuitive, but only because, as a society, we're so hopelessly confused about what calories in, calories out actually means in relation to how we can change the composition of our bodies. Now, I'm sure there's some diehard lord of ketosis shouting in their car right now as they're listening, well, who cares about fat loss? You should be in ketosis because it cures diabetes. Uh, no, it doesn't. So now I'll need to go on another tangent to explain why ketogenic diets do not and cannot cure type 2 diabetes. But then again, this podcast is deconstructing health, so you should expect a lot of explanations. First, we have to understand what causes type 2 diabetes. Again, this is going to be the short course and full details will be given in my upcoming as of yet untitled new book, but I'll try to make it easy to follow. Diabetes, I'm going to stop saying type 2, so keep in mind I'm only talking about type 2 diabetes. Diabetes is actually a later stage symptom of the disease state. That's right, it's a symptom, it is not a disease. To tell you how it fits into the disease cascade, I need to start at the beginning, or at least the beginning of how the disease state works. Although the details are like too many and too complex to discuss right now, I will just tell you that the first stage of the disease state, the thing that trips off the entire disease cascade, is insulin resistance in skeletal muscle tissue. And this is caused by competing signals in the muscle mitochondria when we introduce glucose into the system when the body has has been metabolizing fat, which is basically every time you eat carbohydrates. Don't worry, this damage is temporary unless you're eating carbs with every meal every day, which happens to be the recommendation of the World Health Organization. And yes, carb night and carb backloading eliminate and can actually repair this type of damage. Now normally, when muscle mitochondria is working at peak health, skeletal muscle tissue can dispose of 80% of dietary carbohydrates by either burning it or storing it as glycogen. As mitochondria damage accumulates, this actually drops to about 40% of ingested carbs. Glycogen stores become full and the muscle can't process as much glucose anymore. This is the first stage in the disease cascade, the first Fourier into the disease state. At this point, muscle becomes resistant to insulin. Trying to force more glucose through the muscle would damage it further, and so the body protects one of the most important tissues in the body. Important because as animals, we need to move to survive. So once the muscle decides that its damage is too great, the glycogen stores are full, it actually releases a hormone that communicates directly with fat cells in the body and signals them to absorb more glucose. This explains why studies have shown that when muscle becomes insulin resistant, 40% of ingested carbs end up in our fat cells instead of being disposed of in our muscles. This is the second symptom of the disease state, body fat gain. It doesn't happen because someone is gluttonous, weak-willed, lazy, or because they don't care about how they look. Research has also shown that even people who eat the right amount of calories from a low glycemic index diet will suffer insulin resistance and uncontrollable fat gain later in life. 
If you want a living, breathing example, look up the Indian paradox. As many people in India eat exactly as the World Health Organization advises, yet develop central obesity and the topic of concern, diabetes. So eating this way will slow down the disease cascade, but still guarantees that everyone gets sick. As I mentioned in the previous podcast, the World Health Organization is a driving force in the manufacturing of disease. Anyway, back to the second stage of the disease cascade. As fat cells suffer the onslaught of glucose absorption and then conversion to triglycerides, they actually get an overaccumulation of ATP. When glucose turns into fat, it actually produces extra ATP, which is extra energy. This then begins to damage the fat cells, particularly the mitochondria, because of the electron leakage along the electron transport chain. So as, you in, as the fat cells increase in size, they signal surrounding pre-adipocytes to mature. And once they do, the new fat cells start storing more carbs, turning it into fat. This filling of cells occurs while the new cells suffer damage, and this creates a lot of oxidative stress, caused again by the electron leakage, which signals that fat cells are no longer capable of storing all that excess carbohydrate. So fat cells decide to become insulin resistant too. Now the body's in a horrible state. Muscle, the main disposal tissue for carbs, refuses to accept any more carbs. Fat, the secondary disposal tissue of carbs, also refuses to accept carbs. At this point, the body's in what's known as type 2 diabetes. Okay, I know I said I wouldn't say type 2 anymore, but it seemed dramatic here. So the pancreas keeps dumping higher and higher levels of insulin to clear glucose, but nobody's listening, and the cascade continues. But we can stop here. This gets us to the actual cause of diabetes. As you can tell from this conversation, developing diabetes has absolutely nothing to do with insulin. And yes, that means I'm tearing down yet another theory of the insulin hypothesis. But I warned you that I would. I just hope Jason Fung isn't listening. Nothing's worse than the look on a man's face when he realizes his entire life has been a lie. But now we're back to a familiar place. What does this have to do with the ketogenic diet? As I said in the good segment of the show, ketogenic diets seem so great because when you're on a ketogenic diet, you've removed the poison from the system. But does removing the poison provide a cure? If you've learned anything in this podcast, it's that I ask questions just so that I can say no. And that's the answer here. Simply removing carbs entirely from the diet does not repair the damage. It just stops it from getting worse. Let's suppose that the ketogenic diet did cure diabetes rather than acting as a treatment. Then one could theoretically go on the ketogenic diet, possibly lose some weight, and then after some time go back to eating like they used to and not experience any problems for several more years until the disease cascade catches up again. This is not what happens. Although insulin sensitivity is restored, it's transient. Actually, it's a little more complex than that. At first, it's worse because insulin and glucose receptors have downregulated in various tissues, but then it becomes great as muscles can dispose of large amounts of carbs, again, for a while, but as soon as the glycogen levels fill up and all the damage all the damage signals fire back up, 
the muscle starts telling fat cells to soak up the glucose again, which they do until they get full and we're right back in the cascade. It only takes a few months to end up right where you started after a ketogenic diet. Not the years you might expect if a ketogenic diet actually provided a cure. Ketogenic diets simply mask the disease as long as you stay away from carbs. There's no cure. <clears throat> There's not even any repair. It's like saying metformin, which is diabetic medication, cures diabetes because some of the symptoms go away for a while. And the obesity symptom may also come back while you're still on the ketogenic diet. Even though a person will initially and quickly deplete their muscle glycogen, over the course of three to six months on a ketogenic diet, the levels slowly fill back up. And this is from small amounts of dietary carbs and gluconeogenesis from amino acids and the glycerol backbone that's released from triglycerides. And once the muscles get full, they start sending those signals to fat cells again that the muscles are still sick. The symptoms of the disease cascade, like excess body fat, slowly creep back in. Believe it or not, the reason that no repair is going on is simple. There's no rush of glucose or insulin to turn on the repair mechanisms. Glucose is hormetic. A lot of glucose all the time is a poison, but a little at the right time amplifies health. Case in point, glucose can directly activate the mTOR pathway, which triggers repair processes by mobilizing new cells. So it mobilizes satellite cells to differentiate. And these differentiated cells have brand new undamaged mitochondria, the only source of healthy mitochondria available in adults. This is the only true way to cure mitochondrial damage and hence diabetes. Glucose also triggers a newly discovered target called the KEAP1 pathway, which is a key cellular signal for cleanup and repair. Not to mention that all the other beneficial pathways activated, activated by insulin for the growth, repair, and maintenance of body tissue. If you're ketogenic, your body simply doesn't fix anything that's broken. Or if it does, it takes a really long time, maybe a lifetime. It just keeps working with the broken parts. Now that we've covered the good and the bad, we're ready to delve into the ugly side of the ketogenic movement. If you have any experience with the historical record of research, or you've read Carb Night, you quickly recognize that the new wave of keto gurus are hawking old information, mostly things we knew 30 years ago. And I know this because I first started reading research about ketogenic diets 30 years ago. All the benefits of a ketogenic diet are old news, really old news. Some might argue 200 years old. It predates the modern version of veganism. This is old news. But 30 years ago, if you were being honest about a ketogenic diet, you would specifically prevent people from buying extraneous health supplements. About all you could claim was needed, if you were being ethical, was a multivitamin. Otherwise, you're telling people to eat real food. Now, Atkins was the first to try to extract as much money as possible with superfluous supplements. But in order to do so, he had to do three things. 
First, he modified his original diet plan to include phases, the third phase specifically to allow pretty high levels of carbohydrates. Second, he used and popularized the term net carbs. And third, the Atkins Corporation actually created a fake medical journal and published ostensibly fake research to justify these changes. At this point, Atkins formulated supplements and snacks with a shit ton of sugar alcohol, all but destroying any chance of success for unsuspecting dieters. And the whole thing fell apart. And with it, ketogenic became associated with Atkins and its lackluster reputation, especially the part about how Atkins fails. But recent gurus, and I'm using the word guru as sarcastically as possible here, put a lot of focus on the actual ketones. So much so, it's become the myopic focus of the diet. As I said earlier, if you're focused on ketones, you're not going to achieve maximum fat loss, or you won't preserve lean tissue, and you won't repair the decades of damage lingering in your skeletal muscle tissue. So what's all the hoopla? There are two major changes in the last few years, and they kind of fuel each other. The first is that several studies have been published showing extraordinary benefits of a ketogenic diet and also of adding exogenous ketones. Actually, let me rephrase. Extraordinary benefits for extraordinarily bad situations. Alzheimer's disease, the bends from deep sea excursions, glycogen storage disease type 3, cancer therapy, and the oldest rehash data, childhood epilepsy. There have also been a few review papers that speculate on the potential benefit of ketones independent of being on a ketogenic diet. I want to be clear, these papers are purely speculative. The data does not support their hypotheses. They make a lot of assumptions that just aren't true. The results of these publications have been parlayed into super benefits for regular people, including enhanced cognition, enhanced fat burning, enhanced endurance and sports performance, a natural alternative for Viagra, and a cure for baldness. Okay. I made the last two up, but come on, be honest. They sounded like something a keto guru would say, didn't they? These claims need to sound miraculous, and they need to appear to be directly tied to the ketones themselves. I'll explain more in a minute. But let's review about where the real benefit of a ketogenic diet comes from. Here's the truth. A ketogenic diet does provide many benefits for the average person. Some cognitive, some sports related, some related to fat loss. The ketones have yet to show any critical or beneficial role whatsoever. It's the lack of carbs that provides the benefit. The research is rock solid on this one. I don't need to conjecture. You take the poison out of the diet and stuff just gets better. Ketones have yet to display any metabolic or curative magic. And people on carbonite and CBL get stupidly amazing results without ever seeing ketone levels rise to the one millimole per liter level, which is where the average person's ketone levels are when they wake or if they go for an extended period between meals. Some people can't even produce ketones. They have an enzymatic deficiency in the liver caused by all the years of metabolic damage or even possibly because of genetic aberrations. But they still get all the same benefits except they might feel tired and a little fuzzy 
because there are no ketones to make up for the lack of glucose for the brain. This is where ketones fill their important and only role. They act as a quick energy substitute for glucose in high metabolic rate tissue like the brain, heart, and diaphragm. If ketones don't do anything special except as a replacement substrate, and there are other ways to combat this problem, by the way, why all the sensational rhetoric? This brings us to the second new development in the last several years, the ugliest of the ugly, the availability and marking of exogenous ketones, which has kind of become an Atkins for all kind of model. I suggest that money drives this new outsized and unscientific praise of ketones. Just listen to any podcast on ketones or go to any keto guru's website and you'll see exogenous ketones everywhere. And what's worse is that some of the ketone companies are multi-level marketing or MLM schemes. You only make money if you get a shit ton of people under your umbrella. Now, I don't want to be a cynic, but normally when there's money to be made and extraordinary claims, it's not hard to find the snake oil salesman that, and they didn't get that name selling high-quality, life-changing products. I have two experiences that I can share with you to shed some light on this claim, particularly about MLMs. When I was first starting out with the now defunct Dangerously Hardcore, investors approached me about doing a supplement line. Specifically, they were looking for the next MLM to build and they wanted to use my name and products. When we went over the formulations and after they priced them out, they asked if they could use pea protein instead of whey or maybe soy instead of casein hydrolysates. Obviously, I said no. They spoke to me in a demeaning manner, as if I was just too naive to see what was going on. Look, they told me, we need to get at least a profit to cost ratio of 10 to 1 for the MLM to work, and we'll never be able to do that with the ingredients you want. We can add a little and wrap it into a proprietary blend, and no one will ever know. Hell, we don't even need to put the protein sources on the label if that makes you feel better. I pointed out that I was pretty sure that's illegal. And they said, if we get caught by the FDA, it's only a few thousand dollar fine. It's not a big deal. I can tell you from other experiences with MLM supplements and more traditional supplement companies that this is not at all abnormal. If you want a highly publicized example, just Google Quest Bar Lawsuit. And by the way, if you think you can eat Quest Bars on any type of an ultra low carb diet, you can't. That's part of the reason they got sued. My other experience is directly with the company Keto OS, which is an MLM. They tried really hard to recruit me to endorse their product and become a sales representative. I said the research wasn't there to support exogenous ketone use. They just talked over my comment telling me how amazing Keto OS is. When I asked how high their product could raise ketone levels in someone not on a ketogenic diet, which they had explained was part of their target market, they answered, well, we once saw someone get as high as 0.9. For reference, most people outside of the post-meal window will have ketone levels of 0.5 to 1. By the way, to be fair, Keto OS uses cheap keto salts, which have been consistently shown to cause only small increases in ketone levels, if any. More expensive ketone esters can get levels up to almost 3 millimoles per liter. 
still that doesn't seem to do anything useful, but at least ketone esters can significantly raise ketone levels. So in other words, by their own admission, their product is garbage. Not only because exogenous ketones are garbage, but because according to our phone conversation, they can't even measure a significant effect of their product. The conversation went downhill from there. They did, however, send me some samples which ended up in the toilet. The most appropriate place to put it. Now, whether or not there are any good exogenous ketone products, like ketone esters, we need to ask what possible benefits they might deliver. So far, the research seems pretty clear, and the answer is not much. Maybe you're saying to yourself, all right, there might be a benefit, and there's no downside, so why not try it? And to be honest, I hope you are saying this to yourself, so I can tell you you're wrong. The body is using fat to make a different energy substrate, the ketones, and this is an energetically wasteful pro process. In total, by having to make ketones, you lose a little more energy than you get back. So if you want even the minor benefits of a ketogenic diet, you need to at least be ketogenic on a ketogenic diet. It seems obvious, right? Here's the kicker. Research published all the way back in 1975, and for reference, that's the year I was born, has demonstrated that when you introduce exogenous ketones, even in an extreme state of fasting, the body shuts down its own ketogenesis. In other words, if you're buying exogenous ketones, then you're spending your money to stop the one process that might provide a little bit of benefit. And you're slowing fat loss because you're not using fat to produce the ketones anymore. I mean, how much more unethical can it get? Here, give me money so I can guarantee you get shitty results. Did I mention the snake oil salesman used to sell mixtures of opium and arsenic? Welcome to the modern version. In my attempt to be unbiased, I realized that some of you may have caught what I said earlier, that ketogenesis slows fat loss because it suppresses leptin. So if introducing exogenous ketones shuts down ketogenesis, couldn't this be beneficial? And that's a fair question and you'd be right to ask. This does seem to be the case and gives us one possible use for exog exogenous ketones but it doesn't apply to the average individual. You have to get, you'd have to be extremely lean before this would be useful. And for more on that topic, you'll have to wait for the performance-focused sequel to this podcast on the new episode of Biojacked. So at this point, I think it's time to wrap things up. I've given you a lot to digest. Clearly, this podcast is not going to make me many friends, and I'm probably going to lose some. But that's the cost of being honest and ethical. And presenting the truth is what you support me to do. Besides, I'd rather be honest than popular. Until next time, 